We meet today in Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 8 to verse 18, still talking about the practicality of Christ's coming. And here we are discussing the issue that believers should be established in their work. We looked in our last studies how believers should be established in the word, in their walk, and now we are talking about how believers should be established in their work. The Thessalonians were walking in a right relationship to the Lord Jesus, and they were being persecuted for it. Paul comforted them, instructed and encouraged them. Now he lets them know that he is also undergoing persecution and difficulty. And my friend, if you stand for the Lord Jesus, it will cost you something. We have seen the believers need to be established in the word. We have noted how important the work of the believer is and how his work should be grounded in the word. Now we come to the work of the believer, which is also very practical. This involves things which we need to be engaged in, that the word of God may have its way in our hearts and our lives. Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. Second Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 8. In other words here, Paul paid for what he ate. His practice was that he would not let anyone pay him for his missionary work among them. He says, but with labor and toil, night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. I think this applies especially to his first missionary journey. When he arrived in a town as a missionary, there were no reservations for him at the local motel. No one had even made a preparations for him. There was no mission board that prepared all these things for him. There was no stipend given to him, no love offering, no honorarium, no love offering taken for him the first time he was there. He was very careful about paying his own way. He mentions that to the Thessalonians and also to the Corinthians. When he was establishing churches, he supported himself by tent making. However, after the churches were established and Paul had come back to visit them a second time and a third time, he did receive an offering from them. He makes it very clear to the Galatians that they should give. He thanks the Philippians for their gift. He himself took an offering on his third missionary journey to be given to the poor saints in Jerusalem. Obviously, the great truths of the coming of Christ had not caused Paul to become some sort of a fanatic or to take some unreasonable position in relation to money matters. So he worked. But he is even saying, as you look at my life, I worked. You at Thessalonica must be able to work even when you have the hope of the coming of Christ. Friends, in every age, there are fanatical people. In the past centuries, there have been those who expected the return of Christ, so they even sold their homes and property, wrapped themselves in white sheets, and got on the top of the roof to wait for the Lord to come. 
there were several actions which identified them as fanatics. For example, why get on the roof? Wouldn't the Lord draw a person better into the air from the ground as easily as from a roof? If one really needed to get up on a roof, then wouldn't a mountain top be a better one? And then why in the world would one need a white sheet? I think the Lord is going to furnish us with suitable coverings when we come into his presence. And why would they sell their property and turn it into money? Did they think that they would take their money with them to heaven? You see, people can do some very peculiar, senseless things because they say they believe in the soon coming of Christ. The fact is that there is no other doctrine in the Bible that will make you work harder or more sensibly for Christ other than the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. If you believe that he is coming, you will work for him. You will be busy for the Lord in some phase of his work. You will be putting out a few seeds of the word of God in the field of the world so that they might bring forth a harvest. And that harvest will also be to your credit when it refers to the rewards, not salvation. Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 9. Actually, Paul is saying that as an apostle who had led them to the Lord and established a church among them, he had the right, the authority, to claim an offering from them. However, he did not do this because he wanted to be an example to the believers in Thessalonica that they might not be led to some fanatical position. Today, we trust the Lord to raise the support in the home field, unless if we have our tent-making skills to use in the foreign mission field. You must not wait until you get into the mission field to trust him for support. It is wise to get under a reputable mission board and work with them. And my friend, Africa needs many mission boards. This is our time to be sending back missionaries to the north, to the west, and even to the east. But it is dishonoring to the Lord for anyone to simply go and say, the Lord will provide. I think, yes, unless you have heard God clearly that you will just go without associating with the mission boards that are already in this practice. If the Lord has called you to go to the mission field, he will raise up support for you, and the Lord will lay your needs on the hearts of certain people who will pray for you and support you financially. Paul was making missionary work very practical. He supported himself by working with his own hands, and he did it to be an example to the Thessalonians. He is going to make a point even in the next verse. But as he did so, he used his own hands. He did not go and starve and say, the Lord will provide. If the Lord did not provide through the giving of the saints, he worked for it. It is dishonoring to the Lord to go and simply sit under a tree and proclaiming and preaching the gospel and saying, therefore, the saints will support me. Be practical. And Paul is talking to these believers to be practical even as it relates to the coming of the Lord. Listen to his important point 
in the next verse. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Second Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 10. Actually, the Apostle Paul finds himself in agreement with the biblical spirit, which is expressed in the commandment, Six days you shall labor. Exodus chapter 20 verse 9. You see, the scriptures make provisions for benevolent support for those physically unable to perform gainful work. But for those who are able to labor, and choose to do otherwise. Paul simply says that such a one should not eat. These solutions remains the best solution, the best approach for any society. If you will not work, you will not eat. A believer who is looking for the Lord's return is not a dreamer. He is a worker. No work, no food. That is the rule laid down by the apostles. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Paul urged that those who do not work should not eat. He may have been dealing with the laziness and the idleness of those who thought there would be no tomorrow because they expected the immediate return of the Lord. Over 2,000 years later, we still anticipate the coming of the Lord. But it's interesting that nowadays people generally work as if there will be a tomorrow without the second coming of Christ. Now, it is worth noting that these Macedonian believers, if they were the same ones that Paul referred to in Second Corinthians chapter 8 verse 2, now it is worth noting here that these Macedonian believers if they were the same ones that Paul referred to in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2, lived in abject poverty. They lived in poverty. Now, it is common in communities, particularly poor communities, where jobs are few, and many of those that do exist pay little to support even the basics for some to grow discouraged and even give up all attempts at finding employment. That could explain also the disorderly behavior that Paul rebuked in chapter 3, verse 6. It is also amazing how fanatical people can get about these things. But looking at this, Paul is bringing in the idea that even in your abject poverty, you should not resign work, work, and God will intervene in your situation. He has given you your hands as the means to support yourself. But some people get very fanatical about these things. Dr. McGee relates the story told by the Dean of Men at uh, Moody Bible Institute. It is about an incident that happened some years ago. It goes on to say that two young men roomed together were other examples of those super-duper saints who thought that they were completely sanctified. One day, they didn't appear in the dining room for breakfast or lunch or dinner, so the dean went up to look for them and find out what the problem is. He found that they were just sitting there looking out into space. The dean asked them if they were sick. No, they weren't sick. Then why haven't you come down for the meals? 
They said, we are just trusting the Lord. We are waiting for him to tell us whether we should go down to eat. Are you hungry? he asked. They admitted they were hungry. Don't you think that is one of the ways that the Lord has already told you that you ought to go down to eat because you are hungry? No, they said. We are waiting for a special revelation from him, and we are not going to move until then. So the dean said to them, I have news for you. You are going to move, but not down to the dining room. You are going to move out of school. You won't stay here. There is no place for that kind of fanaticism. My friend, today we are seeing a kind of fanaticism in the area of prophecy. It is quite interesting that in this epistle, which deals largely in prophecy, almost half of it is given over to that which is practical. Paul puts the emphasis on the practical side of the great truths of the coming of Christ for his church. It is one thing to get fanatical about prophecy. It is quite another thing to believe the prophetic truth and then have it meshed and geared into our living down here so that it becomes practical and working. We are to work while we wait. A gardener for a large estate in North Italy was conducting a visitor through the castle and the beautiful, well-groomed gardens. And you can almost imagine when people are admiring this place. As the visitor had lunch with the gardener and his wife, the visitor commented, he commended them for the beautiful way they were keeping the gardens. And he asked, by the way, when was the last time the owner of this garden was here? The gardener answered and he said, it was about 10 years ago, the gardener said. Wow. The visitor then asked another question. Why do you keep up the garden in such an immaculate, lovely manner? The gardener answered, because I am expecting him to return. He persisted. Is he coming next week? The gardener replied, I don't know when he is coming, but I am expecting him today. Isn't that amazing? Although he didn't come that day, this gardener was living in the light of the owner's imminent return. The gardener wasn't hanging over the gate, watching down the road to see whether his master was coming. He was in the garden, trimming, cutting, mowing, planting. He was busy. That is what Paul is talking about when he says we should be established in the work of the Lord in view of the fact that he is returning. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. You see, the Thessalonians had a few fanatics who simply withdrew themselves and decided that they were going to spend all their time looking for the Lord's return. Paul writes, don't feed them. They have to go to work. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner and not working at all, but are busy bodies. Second Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 11. Now here we are told the actual situation. There were some who were not working at anything constructive. They were not interested in getting out the word of God, but they were busy. They were busy bodies. They were really making a new sense of themselves 
and they were causing trouble in the church. It takes just one bad apple to spoil the barrel. It takes just one little fly to spoil the ointment and one fanatic in the church to affect the spiritual life of many believers. That is the reason Paul had said before that they were to withdraw themselves from the ones who walk disorderly. And I'm sure he had the busybodies in mind. They were busy as termites and just as effective as termites in the church at Thessalonica, but effective in what way? In the negative sense. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12. Well, this doesn't sound very spiritual, does it? It doesn't sound very theological either, but it is certainly practical. It would solve many problems in the average church if the busybodies, the troublemakers, would work with quietness and do something constructive. It is interesting that the man who has been the biggest troublemaker in any church that I have served was the smallest contributor, actually. He cannot give more money and more trouble at the same time. And sure enough, we often see little money or physical work, but much trouble. There must have been people like that in the church at Thessalonica. Paul says that they were to quietly go to work and mind their own business. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. Second Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 13. How wonderful this is. A believer who holds the blessed hope should not grow weary for working for the Lord. As Moody puts it, I get weary in the work, but not weary of the work. You see, the labor of love is never difficult. It becomes the joy. Do you grow weary of holding to high standards of integrity or performance? Do you resent a lack of recognition? Are you fed up as you see others around you maneuvering to get out of work? And do you seethe when they get away with it? Well, Paul's admonition here is meant for believers who are burned out on doing good. Keep in mind that God never forgets you. You are the object of his attention and love. He sees the good that you do when no one else is around, and he will never forget it. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, not that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Second Thessalonians chapter 3 Verse 14 and 15. Another instance of the authority which Paul recognized in his own writings may be observed here. Those who disobeyed the words of Second Thessalonians were to be noted and avoided. The purpose for such restriction is that they may be ashamed and to be admonished as a brother. The ultimate goal here is restoration and growth not castration. People in the church ought to withdraw from troublemakers in the church 
However, many people more or less court their favor because they don't want those people to talk about them, knowing they have vicious tongues. But withdrawing from the gossips, the best thing that could happen in many churches would be realized. Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. Second Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 16. Isn't that lovely when people have already put into practice the theories, the ideas that they have believed? The Lord's peace will be with you always. The salutation of Paul with my own hands, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. Second Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 17. Well, this is an epistle from Paul, signed with his own hand. By the way, Paul's seal in his own handwriting indicates the authenticity of this letter. This was necessary since apparently some forged documents claiming to be from his pain were circulating according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 2. So Paul makes clear how they can identify his genuine writing. And what does he say? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Second Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 18. His letter ends with this wonderful benediction. It is the conclusion of a wonderful epistle which teaches that the knowledge of prophecy rather than leading to fanaticism or laziness brings peace to the heart, a joy in serving the living God while we wait for the return of his son, Jesus Christ. May that be your anticipation as well. May that joy be a reality in your heart. May that peace be yours, the peace of God. You can have copies of the notes and outlines used for these Living Word for Africa programs so you can follow them as you listen. For your copies, please write to the Living Word for Africa P.O. Box 4232, Kempton Park, 1620, South Africa. Please say which book of the Bible you want them for, and be sure to include your name and contact information. Let me give you that address again. It's the Living Word for Africa, P.O. Box 4232, Kempton Park, 1620, South Africa.